good afternoon. So, you know, how many times in life do we have things that happen that all of a sudden we don't even realize the hand of God is guiding us and leading us to each one of these things and they seem disappointing maybe at first but only afterwards when we realize that every single step of the way every single one of these situations was guided by the hand of Hashem. And what is it? In this week's Torah reading that we can see this is something which is accentuated and stressed throughout the Torah reading and throughout the stories and the episode is the Exodus of Egypt. So if we look in this week's Torah reading, this week's Torah reading begins by Yedabar Elohim, and God speaks to Moshe, saying, I am Havai. I'm just going to use the Hebrew word so that we get familiar, which is Elohim. He says, he addresses him, and Elohim speaks to Moses and says, I am Havai. What is Elohim, and what is Havai, and what's the difference between the two? Secondly, and probably more of a popular question, which is that this week we begin to read about the ten plagues. And the ten plagues takes us, we have this week's Torah reading the seven plagues, and next week's Torah reading we read about three plagues. If God wanted to destroy Egypt, why did he have to take a year for it to happen? Why did it have to take ten plagues? Could have done one plague, wiped out everybody else. Why the ten plagues? Can I answer, or you just don't? It's not. Well, a we'll question, find out. Really. We'll see. Oh, okay. This is our introduction, and we'll see if we. You, what do you suggest? If you have a, a let's hear. What do you have to suggest an answer to which one? Could, why ten plagues? No, not why ten. Why a year? Why, why so long? Because okay. it took so long to you know unharden Pharaoh's heart. Do you think? Let me interrupt you there. Do you think that God doesn't have a way that He can unharden God Pharaoh's heart in just an instant? Yes. I'll tell you even quick, uh, even a bigger problem with that question. We only find that Pharaoh's heart was hardened only during the ten plagues. In the beginning of the ten plagues, his heart doesn't say anywhere in the Torah that his heart was hardened. <laughs> so if you think that God is the infinite, all miraculous, and able to do everything, if He can make Pharaoh's heart hardened, who made Pharaoh's heart hardened? God. Ki ani God made it hard. God didn't have to make it hard. He could have let the Jewish people out on the first plague, and everything would have happened, as we'll soon see. So I guess it's not that simple the answer. I guess so. <laughs> so let's have a little bit of introduction and go back to last week's Torah reading. Last week's Torah reading, Moses, Moshe comes along to God, and he is probably the first person in history to ever tell God why. Abraham didn't tell God why. Isaac didn't tell God why. Jacob didn't tell God why. On the contrary, when Jacob saw Esau coming against him with 400 men, Jacob said, what did I do wrong? I better shape up. I'm about to be killed. He didn't say, God, why are you sending Esau at me? I just suffered with love. But all of a sudden, Moshe comes. He's told by God, go tell the Pharaoh to let the Jewish people out of Egypt. The Pharaoh says, I'm not only am I not letting the Jewish people out of Egypt, but I'm making their work even harder. The Jewish people come and complain to Moses, what are you doing here? Mix out, don't come here, don't bother us, and everything will be all right. So what does God, what does Moshe tell to God? Why did you send me ever since I gathered things have become terrible? Why did you make it bad for the Jewish people? And over here, this week's Torah reading begins the answer. What's the answer? The answer is, God, Elohim, speaks to Moshe and says, I am Havaya. And what does God continue to tell Moshe? 
And I've spoken to Abraham, I've spoken to Isaac, I've spoken to Jacob. And I never told them the name of I. And I even made promises to them. Not once did they ever complain or say why. And all of a sudden you come and say why. But what does God continue in saying? I have told, my, told the forefathers many different things, but now you should know you're going to be rewarded. You're going to have this name, Havanya, and you're going to be able to see the great miracles that happen. And over here, our question is, Moshe comes with a complaint and says, why did you make the Jewish people bad? So what does God come along and says, I'm not Elohim, I'm Havanya. From the name Yudke Vavke. What is, what is the difference between these two names? Even more so. When we look at it, we know that the names of God, each one of them, represents something else. Every single name of God has a different representation and means another connotation. The name Elohim is opposite of what the name Havai is. The name Havai is what we call the name, we don't, we don't know the name, how to pronounce it. We call it Yud, then Ehei, then Avav, then Hey, which we call and we pronounce the word of subservience, Adonai. But the actual name Elohim, they two mean two different things. Elohim means nature. In fact, the word Elohim is the same numeric value as the word the nature. And when God created the heaven and earth, what does he say? Beresh is bara. Elohim. Elohim created nature. Elohim comes from the form of judgment. That's why nature comes from judgment. It's particular. It is the same. What is nature? Nature, by definition, means that it's the same thing every single day. That's God, and that's God's hand in nature. That is the godly part of nature, which comes from the concept of judgment. While the shame Havaya, the name Havaya is the opposite. The name Havaya is the concept of miracles, miraculous events, which come from the level of chesed, the level of kindness, generosity, attraction, which therefore it is an event that is much more, and that's why miracles come from that way. When God comes to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asks God, what is your name I should tell the Jewish people? God responds, Ek asher ek, I am who I am. I am meaning that my name changes depending on the situation. Sometimes I'm a and sometimes I'm a Elohim. Depending on each way, wherever I am. Not only that, you'll notice that in almost every single Torah reading before we come to the book of Shemos, most of the time it's used in the name Elohim. Even in the conversation. Where we find in this week's Torah reading, we were last week's Torah reading, I'm sorry, where it talks about the episodes that happened in the land of Egypt, and Elohim saw the midwives, Elohim made knives for the midwives, whatever, because of their great miracle. As soon as God comes to Moses in the burning bush, he uses the name Havaya. Fayar Malach Havaya Yudkevavke, or all of a sudden uses that terminology. So we find this name of Yudkevavke used almost 10 times throughout the Torah readings of Shmos, the era, and then continuing until the exodus of Egypt. What is it? Why then is it that Elohim says, God tells Moshe, I am Elohim, and I am Avaya. Which one is it? Is he Elohim or is he Avaya? It's two different... What way is he representing to the Jewish people? What way does he want to present himself to the Jewish people? Is it an Elohim way, or is it from the way of judgment, or is it from the way of kindness? So what happens now? God comes to him and says, listen here. Elohim says, I am Avaya. Now, you're going to go and tell Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. But which way is he going to tell Pharaoh? Mm. Is he going from the name of Elohim? Or is he going from the name of Avaya? But what is, what is he going to tell Pharaoh? 
He goes and tells Pharaoh, and it sees what's going to happen. There's going to be ten plagues that are going to happen. And every single time he's going to come into Pharaoh's palace and tell him diplomacy is over. You had your chance to let the Jewish people go. You did not. And here you go, you're going to be hit with one plague after the next plague. Blood, frogs, lice, wild animals, pestilence, and everything else of the sort. Why so many plagues? Why couldn't he just go into the land of Egypt? And all of a sudden God say, listen here Pharaoh, diplomacy doesn't work. You're waiting wiped out. You think God didn't do it before? He did the flood. Didn't take much. He can take the Jewish people out of Egypt, make a flood, or build, build them an ark, whatever he wants, every, any creative way he wants. Stone Gomorrah. God made a ring, sulfur and tar, destroyed the whole place. One plague, all gone. Could have made a disease. Pandemic would have wiped them out as well. All of a sudden, he has to go through ten plagues. Not only ten plagues. Why only ten plagues? Even this, the very fact that the Jewish people were in the land of Egypt, they were near the exile already for 210 years. Don't you think it's time to get them out? Not only that, when it came time to go out, they were rushing to the extent they couldn't even make food for the way. Right? And that's why we're eating a hard matzah, because the Jewish people were rushing out of Egypt, that they couldn't wait an extra moment for the bread to rise, and therefore they were rushing out of Egypt. But the plagues took a whole year. The Medrash talks about like how long it took for them from the time that Moshe came the first time to Pharaoh until finally the exodus of Egypt was an entire year. Every single plague took almost a month. There was a week of warning, a week of the plague, a week of recuperating, whatever it may be. What did it have to take a year for? If it took a year, then why are you rushing at the end? And if you were rushing at the end, you could have woke up a little bit earlier and it wouldn't have taken a year. So it seems like there's a whole program, there's a whole agenda over here that when God was creating the templates for the Jewish people to go out of Egypt or to smite Pharaoh with, wasn't just templates because he thought of ten creative things to do that we should be able to talk about by the Seder. There was a system, there was an event that was happening here. Even more so, when we talk about this whole idea of Moshe coming to Pharaoh and going through the entire episode, you will look and you can see that there's different ways how each one of the plagues happened. The first plague, Moshe comes to Pharaoh and tells him, and he warns him, either let the Jewish people go or everything will turn to blood. By the second plague of frogs, he already doesn't warn him anymore. He tells him about an action. And then the third plague also happens on its own. Then you go back, you see it again, and you see there's different levels of how the plagues are split up into different ways, where you see the first is given with warning, the second is a little bit of a warning, and then finally the third is no warning at all. Then you come, that's only about the first six plagues. When you come to the last three plagues, there's even no warning whatsoever. Until you come to the last plague itself, with the plague of the firstborn. So which one is it? What's going on over here? Each thing seems like there's little different nitty-gritty details that we may be missing out. And it comes to the point where we have to understand that the plagues that the Egyptians had we're not necessarily to punish the Egyptians. To punish the Egyptians, God could have found many other creative ways to do it as well. In fact, the plagues itself were not even intended to help the Jewish people get out of Egypt. The plagues were intended to get Egypt out of the Jews. Every single one of the plagues were there to be able to carve and to understand and appreciate and to engrave within the Jewish people 
the concepts, the understanding and appreciation of what it means, how God is affecting every single part of the universe. The Baal Shem Tov says, and he talks about, when we say in this week's Torah reading that God said he's going to bring the plagues within every single human being and the animals and everything that, everything that exists. And the Baal Shem Tov explains that this concept is that the belief in God should permeate every single existence of the universe. That was the point of the plagues. If you take the number of the plagues, on the Seder night, after we pour a little bit of wine by each plague, at the end we say, Rabbi Yehuda says, and he would give special signs. The Tzach Adash Pachav, he groups the plagues in three different parts. The first three, the second three, and then the last four. Why does he group them all in different parts? When he comes up with this whole creative thing, the Tzach Adash Pachav, any child can group it any way he wants and come up with names. So some want to say Rabbi Yudah was poor, he didn't have enough wine to pour, so therefore he made it in three different groups, he only saw three wine, wine pour three times. But this is not just by coincidence. Rabbi Yehuda over here is teaching us a very important lesson. And a very important teaching in the actual way we look at what the plagues are all about. And over here he's telling us of how, if we look at each one of these plagues, the lessons that we can learn, A, in the way they're set up, and being what their concept was. And if we look at each one of the plagues, these three sections, the first three, the second three, and the last three, are so to speak a repetition of the same system that happens from the beginning. Let's take the first plague. Moses comes to, uh, Moses comes to Pharaoh. Where does he come to? Early in the morning while he's standing by the Nile River, telling him, I got you. You want to make believe that you're a god and you don't have to Defecate, I know that, look, you have to go to the bathroom as well. We've caught you, and this is the Nile River. And what does he come and tells him? And he warns him, and he says, listen here. You're, if you don't let the Jewish people go, the blood, water, the, uh, the Nile River will turn to blood. That's number one. Comes the second plague. He comes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. Frogs are going to be throughout Egypt. Comes the third plague. He doesn't come to Pharaoh at all. He tells Aaron, pick up, hit the ground, and all of a sudden there's lice in Egypt. The same thing happens again by the next one. It comes to the plague of wild animals. He comes early in the morning, tells Pharaoh, wild animals are going to happen, oh, unless they let the Jewish people leave. It comes to the next plague of pestilence. He comes to Pharaoh, tells Pharaoh, pestilence is going to occur. Pestilence happens. Boils. He takes some ash, throws it into the ear, automatically boils. Happened, he doesn't even tell Pharaoh what's happening. Same thing happens again when it comes to locusts. Locusts begins next week's Torah reading. When it comes to locusts, God comes to Pharaoh, Moshe comes to Pharaoh and says, Boil, Pharaoh, come to Pharaoh, let him go. Pharaoh says, I'm never letting them go. Don't you ever come to me again. And locust happens. Darkness, he comes to him again. And he lets him know about what the darkness is going to be. Right? Following me? Yeah, yeah. And then, I'm sorry, the hail. First the hail, then the locust, then the, um, the first by the hail he warns him, then the locust, and then darkness he doesn't even tell him. And then finally, when it comes to the 10th plague, then he comes and warns him again about the 10th plague of the, of the plague of the firstborn. It's an interesting thing that you actually notice that talking about why would all 10 have to happen, if you remember in last week's story reading, Moshe already says, if you don't let the Jewish people go, and God will hit your firstborn. He already alluded to the 10th plague, even though he doesn't say it clearly. 
So if we look over here, these three, you'll notice in the different plagues, in the first plague, also the terminology that God uses. By the first plague, God says, with this you will know that God exists. By the second and the third plague, he doesn't even say anything. By the fourth plague again, he says, like this you will know that God exists amongst the Jewish people. And then the fifth and sixth, he doesn't say anything. The seventh plague, he says, like this you will know that there's nobody like me, like God. So if you look at the three different terminologies, number one, he says, like this you will know that God exists, not that I am God. Number two, you will know the difference that God exists amongst the people. And number three, you will know that there's nobody like God. With this, we come to the understanding that the plagues were not just merely punishments. They were methods of cleansing and appreciating and giving the Jewish people an appreciation of what God is. Creating a merge and a preparation for what's going to follow after the exodus of Egypt. The entire exodus of Egypt was only there as an introduction to the giving of the Ten Commandments, to the Torah being given to Mount Sinai. The entire exodus of Egypt, as we know, what did God tell Moses in last week's Torah reading? How will you know this is true? Because we will be back here at this mountain when I will give you the Torah. The entire purpose of the Jewish people leaving Egypt was that the Torah should be given to the Jewish people. To be able to bring holiness and spirituality to change the world. To connect and to fuse the physical world with the spiritual world. Now within the physical world, there are three ways of thinking. Three theological ways of thinking about godliness. One of them is that there is no God, God forbid. There is no spiritual existence. The world has just happened by chance. There was a big bang. Atoms just exploded and we're here in the world by accident. And everything that here happens by accident, we came by accident and we'll leave by accident. There's no purpose, there's no meaning, it's just living life the way it is. That's one way of looking at it. A second way of looking at it is a little more spiritual. Yes, there is a spiritual um, power in the world, but the spiritual power is so great that it doesn't affect our life. It's so great that it doesn't want to involve itself in the physical, materialistic things. That's another way of looking at it. And then there's a third way of looking at it. Yes, there's a spiritual element in the world. Not only does a spiritual element exist in the world, but it also cares about what we do. And everything that happens in this world, even the most simplest act of a small leaf turning over four times, is an act of God. And with every single part in the act of nature, exists godliness. And this is the way godliness makes and grows and continues. And this is the way the world continues to develop us, only through the power of God. Right before the Torah was given, the world had to go through this change that people should understand and appreciate within the physical realm of things, that the physical individual should be able to understand that godliness exists. How was that? How was that possible? We're talking about Egypt, which is the most impure, immoral place of all. How is it possible that Jewish people that have been imprisoned in Egypt for 210 years should have that appreciation? So all of a sudden... Comes the mirror, comes the plagues. You have the first plague, what does God come to tell, what does Moses come and tell Pharaoh, and listen and appreciate and understand that this is going to happen. So the first plague, he has his magicians do the same thing, he doesn't care. Second plague, he has his magicians do the same thing, he doesn't care. Finally, by the third plague, what happens? The magicians themselves say, as in the words of the Torah, ex this must be the finger of God, God's fingerprints are all over this. 
That means they came to the understanding. Step number one, the world is not an accident. There's a God that controls things. Now, is he involved in every single thing? That we don't know about. We're not letting the truth out yet. We know we came to the acknowledgement, number one, God exists. What happens later on? What happens to the next plague after that? Comes the plague of, of wild animals. When it comes to the plague of wild animals, they see there are wild animals within Egypt. There's wild animals by the Egyptians, but there's no wild animals by the Jews. There are pestilence. The, the Egyptians' animals are dying. The Egyptians, uh, the ones of the Jews are not dying. The boils are happening to the, Jew, to the Egyptians, but not to the Jews. They see a clear differentiation within the activity of nature. They are able to see that within nature itself, there's a godly force. But do they believe that the godly force is in every single thing? Yeah, they believe there's a godly force. It helps it grow, it moments it, but not necessarily in every detail. Has physical have been transformed by spiritual? Absolutely not. It's guided by it. That was its, like, that was its theology at the moment. But all of a sudden it comes to the third level. The third level of the plagues, the third group of the plagues. So we have now the first three, the second three. Now we're at the fourth. I'm sorry, the third group. The third group begins with the plague of boils. Mm -hmm. What happens with the plague of boils? Over here, this is a plague where you have fire and water mixed the two. Mm -hmm. Fire and water, it's not just nature now. It's above nature. It's beyond nature. That means nature itself has no existence. Everything that exists in this world is godly. Even the nature. And this is automatically what happens. You see the hand of God in every single activity that exists in this world. It wasn't just that I see the hand of God, but I saw that nature itself is godly. Whether it was with the locust, whether it was with the, with the boils, I'm sorry, with the uh, hail or the darkness. And this was the absolute thing that together, nature and above nature, were working hand in hand and this was brought about also in the, in the concept of darkness. While everything, the sun was shining outside, but it was dark inside the people's rooms. While they're dark inside the people's rooms, but the Jewish people were able to see it. And if you want to look at the plague of the firstborn, the plague of the firstborn took all three of them together. The plague of the firstborn, number one, proved that the Egyptian magicians couldn't do it, that God exists. Number two was able to differentiate between who's good and who's not good, that the Jewish people were not getting killed while the, Jew, no, the Egyptians were. And number three, it was showing itself within nature. You had young people, young animals, everything was automatically dying. When we see that nature itself is something which has no authority on a Jewish person, that everything that a person does is forced and is is guided by the divine life, automatically that gives us a better understanding, an ultimate appreciation of what godliness is all about. There was a chassid. His name was Reb Simcha Garadetsky. He was a uh, chassid who passed away in 1984. Uh, Came out of communist Russia in 1964. When he was a young boy, about 11 years old, his parents sent him to learn in the yeshiva, Tevchet Mim in Kharkov. This is going back in 1923. In 1923, he was a boy of 11 and a half years old. He was learning in the yeshiva in Kharkov, and he got very sick. The uh, Rabbi Fagin, Rabbi Chacha Fagin, who was then the principal of the yeshiva, 
sent him to a doctor that was nearby. And he went with him to the doctor. The doctor examined him, asked him to go out of the room, and he called in the principal to talk to him. And the principal, and he was a very inquisitive boy, so he's listening what the doctor is telling the principal. And the doctor tells the principal that this boy doesn't have more than a half a year to live. Send him home, let him go rest up, because what he has is a very weak heart, it's not going to survive. They come back to the yeshiva, and Chacha Fagin tells him, go rest, go take a rest. But this boy heard what the doctor said, and he says, I'm going to Rostov, to the, fourth, to the fifth Chabad Rebbe, to ask for a blessing. And the principal took him to Rostov, to the, to the fifth Chabad Rebbe. The principal went into the Rebbe Rashab's room, told him and gave him a report. This was without the child. Gave him a report from the doctor. And told him whatever he told the Rebbe Rashab. The fifth Chabad Rebbe calls the boy and tells the boy, and says, listen here, being that you're too weak to sit in yeshiva and learn for 12 hours. I'm going to give you my own curriculum of what you should be doing, and you will become a shadar, which means my representative. And you will go from city to city on my personal errands of what I would need you to do, whether it was fundraising for the yeshiva or opening yeshivas, and you'll have a long life. This is what he told him. This, of course, blessing led Reb Simcha all the way through communism. He was thrown into prison for 10 years in, the, in Siberia. He went from place to place, and all he did his life, he was one of the first that went to Tashkent, Uzbekistan, Samarkand, and brought all the different uh, Bukharian Jews, and was, he was like considered like a, like a rabbi by them. He was able to, he had underground Chadorim, he had a network of different, all in, as a shlichus, as a representative of the fifth Kabbalah Rebbe, the later on by the previous Rebbe, and, and continued on until he came out of Russia in 1964. In 1964, when he came out of Russia, the question was where he was going to live. And he came to the Rebbe and he told the Rebbe that he thinks that he should live in B'nai Brak, being that he's very weak, and there's a doctor, that's a permanent doctor, B'nai Brak was already a developed city at the time, and there's a doctor nearby, and therefore maybe you should live in B'nai Brak. And the Rebbe told him you should live in Kfar Chabad. That time in 1964, Kfar Chabad was a real village. There was no permanent doctor there. There were people who were still doing agriculture, horse and buggies. It wasn't uh, yet developed as it is today. Is it still there where again? Kfar Chabad. The Kfar Chabad is the village that the previous Rebbe set up in, it's nearby Tel Aviv. It's the village of Chabad in in, uh, in Israel. So when he t- looked at the Rebbe, he says, but I'm weak. The Rebbe looked at him and says, the one that made sure that you were alive already until today will make sure you'll be alive for him. And he lived until 1984. Wow. This is 64 years later from the first time that he was told that he has a half a year to die. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that the first time he went to a doctor in Kfar Chabad, that's when he died. <laughs> but the miracle that, but what was this? Over here you saw a person. And while all the doctors are standing there. Huh? Don't go to doctors. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. You have a blessing from the Reverend Shab that you don't go there. He didn't have to go. No, what I'm saying is that the, the concept is that you see, what you saw over here is that nature doesn't have a difference, doesn't have a hold on a Jew. Nature itself is God's hand. And if God wants you to live, you live. 
And if God tells you to go to the doctor because that's part of nature, that's what you have to do. But in this case, the Rebbe Rashab told him, I have a different way to do things to you. And he was able to go through all the tumultuous times and the most difficult of everything. Mm-hmm. In Siberia, whatever it may be, because he had that blessing and as long as he was doing the errands that he was given, he was promised that long life. Excuse me, Rabbi, those errands were probably more strenuous than sitting in Yeshua for 12 hours. But, but it's because he was doing it, that's what the Rebbe Shaft told him. According to this, we now can understand the difference between the name Havai and the name Elohim, and why does the Torah first begin and say, by Yadabar Elohim, and Elohim says it, and only afterwards the Havaya. Because what is God telling Moshe? Until now, over here, I'm going to need to use both of these names in order to get the Jewish people out of Egypt. That means Elohim means nature, Havaya means above nature. That in order to reflect, to get the Jewish people out of Egypt, not to get the Jewish people out of Egypt, but to get Egypt out of the Jewish people, to prepare them for the giving of the Torah, we need to be able to show that Elohim and Havaya, the nature and above nature, are one unit, are one essence, are one thing. And because of this, God comes along and says, Vayidaber Elikim. Elikim is talking to you. It's going to look like from a way of nature. But it's going to be Havaya. It's going to be within nature. These miraculous events are going to happen. While the normal system of events, you're going to go and you're going to warn Pharaoh. You're going to tell him if you don't let the Jewish people go, this is going to happen. But as you're going to see things develop through these ten plagues, and that's why ten plagues were needed. Because in order to be able to get this transition, we needed the first three, the second set of three, and finally the last four. To be able to permeate and to change the modality, the theology, the way of thinking of all the people that were then in the, in the immorality of Egypt. Because the way they were sunk after 210 years in the greatest impurity, that's why they all had to go through the templates, and that's why it had to take a year. But the moment they were ready, got to get them out as soon as possible. Because until that last moment, they weren't ready. Because the moment they were ready, we had to get them out as soon as, as soon as possible so that any other evil influence shouldn't change their mind, shouldn't come to be able to make corrupt them. So the concept over here is the templates had a system, had a level of what they were working on to be able to create and influence and merge this fusion of Elohim and Avaya, nature and subnature, that they should become one unit, one entity. That within the nature... The Jewish people should see the godliness that exists. And this was the beginning of the parsha, taking us all the way through next week's parsha. Just to conclude with an unbelievable story, where we see the hand of God and everything that happens. Where sometimes we say, it's a miracle, but the miracle happens in a natural way, in the greatest of ways. This story goes back in the year 2000. There was a fellow, he worked in the diamond district in uh, Israel, in Ramat Gan. His name was Tamir. And one day Tamir walks into his, uh, into a, an office where he was the nearby office's neighbor who was also a diamond fellow, the guy that did diamonds in Tel Aviv. And he sees a whole, uh, a whole bunch of things on the table. He says, what's going on over here? So he says, listen here, I just got into a fight with my parents. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm taking everything that I have from my youth and throwing it in the garbage. And he had took all his uh, certificates and all his report cards, anything he had from his childhood, he threw it into the garbage. Tamir is looking over there into the <laughs> garbage that he's throwing out. And he sees an American check. And in this American check, he saw that in it was a check for $200. That this check was from the Rebbe's secretariat from 1989. In 1989, the Rebbe said it's Shnasa Binyan. 
It's a year of building. And that people should build projects. And any person that built any type of project, whether it was an expansion in their home, expansion in their shul, whatever it may be, the Rebbe sent a participation into that project to check for whatever it was. Each person was a different amount. And it looks like this person got a check of $200. And Tamir says, who was not an observant Jew, he saw the check. It seemed interesting to him, so he took it. <laughs> Even though he said, but he asked the fellow, can I take it from the garments? I don't care, take it, keep it. Three months later, Tamir and his wife, Mayan, were invited to the rabbi in their community for Shabbos meal, for Friday night meal. Rabbi Volpa's name is, the Shliach in Netanya. They thought, you know, they're coming for a Friday night meal, let me get them a gift, they're coming for the meal. Get them a bottle of wine, or this or that, some chocolate. So they said, look, we have this check here from the Lubavitcher of the Secretariat. Maybe we should give it to the rabbi, the Chabad rabbi. He'll probably find it important and something useful. So therefore, they took the bottle of wine, around it, inside they put the check, and they gave it to the rabbi. It was right before Shabbos. The rabbi didn't look and put it, put it away, and whatever it may be. Fifteen years later, going now to 2014, <laughs> this Tamir would continue to do business. And he was doing business in Moscow, doing diamonds. He ended up in the shul there, in the Marina Russia shul, I mean, the big Chabad center in Russia, in Moscow. He's sitting in the shul, and he's listening to over there, the director is doing some fundraising, doing some type, uh, you know, director of the building saying, yesterday we had a fundraiser, and we auctioned off a dollar of the Rebbe for $4,000. Now this time here is looking and says, one second, this guy just auctioned one dollar for $4,000. I got a check for $200. How much more money I can make from it? Let me go see what happened to that check. Maybe we can make something more. Maybe we can make a bit of some money off it. Comes back home. He contacts Rabbi Volpa. And he was like a little embarrassed. But at the same time, uh, Rabbi Volpa says, Oh, that's nice that you called. We're doing a fundraiser now. So he says, interesting thing that you're talking about a fundraiser. I'm willing to double, she says, the pledge that we originally gave if you give us back that check that you got from us 15 years ago. Rabbi Volpa says, it's interesting you asked me about that check, but I have to tell you that unfortunately, I don't have the check anymore. Mm. Because, he says, just I had that check sitting in my desk for a long time, and just a few months ago, Terrible tragedy happened in Ramat Gan. The Shliach of Ramat Gan, his name was Ramati Gal. He was actually himself an interesting thing, just a little side note about this Rabbi Moti Gal, who recently passed away then in 2014. He was an American boy, Israeli American boy, and he was um, involved in Hollywood, making movies and things like that. And he decided to discover his Judaism and came to learn. And Adar Torah at the time, many years ago, this was in the late early 70s. And he went into the Rebbe Yechidus. He had a private audience with the Rebbe, and he asked the Rebbe what he should do. Should he continue to go back into the movie industry or whatever? And the Rebbe looked at him and said, a religious Jew cannot be in the movie industry. That was a thing, an observant Jew. And he went on to move to Israel, and he became a Chabad Shliach in Ramat Gan. And he was a Shliach of the Rebbe in Ramat Gan. And he passed away after suffering for a very long time. And he thought, what can I do to help his widow? This Rabbi Volpa says. So I said, I saw this check here. And I said, I gave it to her. 
and maybe she can auction it, maybe she can use it, but that she shouldn't have this check and she can think maybe she wants to keep it as a uh, good omen and that she can do whatever she needs with it and I gave it to her. This, so they called up this lady, this Mrs. Gal from Ramat Gan. They call her up and she says, actually, what happens to the check? We were doing a fundraiser for our organization and we used the check to auction it off as a fundraiser. And a fellow by the name of Shlomo Kalish, who lives in Jerusalem, I actually ate in his house when I was there once. He's a, a very wealthy individual in high tech and he gave a very big donation. He was friends with Ramotte Gal and he gave a big donation in order to get the check. So they understand now they're not getting back this check. This is already so many different ways past. A few months later, he's back in Tel Aviv, going through the Diamond District, and he goes to visit that old friend from 15 years ago that was uh, throwing out his stuff. And they start talking. And he starts talking to them. And while they're talking, he's telling him about the story, he says, I don't understand. How did your father even get that check? Like, why... Where do you, you're not like an observant Jew. What do you have a Chabad? You got a check, $200 for a building fund. So he says, I'll tell you, my father had a friend in Ramat Gan named Ramat Gal. <laughs> and Ramat Gal got this check. And he came down in hard times. He needed money, so he made a fundraiser. And my father got this check from Ramat Gal as a, as a thank you for contributing a large amount to his Chabadas at the time. And now you see how that check mm -hmm. that that father got from Ramat Yigal ended up back wow. to his widow, came back to him. Mm -hmm. All by a system of events. You can call it coincidence, but I call it God ways of saying anonymous. Mm -hmm. It's, you see that within nature, miracles happen in our life. And this is the lesson that we learned from this week's Torah reading. That in every single one of our lives, in the most simplistic things, that we don't even glance on, we don't even take a moment to think, but they're all miraculous from the places we go to the people we see to the transactions that happen are all miraculous events. And what God was telling Moshe, Elikim, Elikim was saying, it's nature. But there's a miracle happening in every single part of that nature that you see. And this is what Moshe saw, what God was telling him, and every single one of us. The way we take Egypt out of us, the reason why we don't see it is because we're in Egypt. We're limited. We're not allowing ourselves to expand. We're enslaved to nature. So what does God say? You want to come out of Egypt? You want to take Egypt out of the person? Realize there's Havai and Elohim, they come together, that you'll see miracles in everything in nature. Yes, you